And Father, as we now come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word and we remember that Your Word is truth. We remember that Your Word is inerrant, that it is unassailable, that it is sufficient, that it is infallible, and that Your Word always returns to You accomplishing exactly what You wish for it to accomplish. It will never return to You null and void. And so we pray, O Lord, that as we study Your Word, that You would nourish us, that You would feed us, that You would strengthen us, that You would convict us. Lord, You know what we need. And we pray that You would accomplish Your purposes in our lives in growing us in Christ's likeness through the study of Your Word. Bless our children. We pray, O Lord, that the seeds would fall onto fertile soil, the seeds of the Gospel that they hear today. We pray, O Lord, that You would save our children, that You would raise them up to be sharp arrows in Your quiver. O Lord, use this time to strengthen Your people, to sanctify Your people, and to glorify Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. You've probably noticed... If you watch the news, or if you read the news, that right now our world is in a moral freefall. That there is no such thing as right and wrong as far as the world around us is concerned. In fact, they, that's what they would say, but that's not really what they believe. As you look around us, what you see is that they actually believe that evil is good and that good is evil. And maybe you've wondered, how does a nation get to a point like what we're seeing now? And I would first of all say it's not just our nation. This is something that's happening around the world. There's an absolute moral freefall going on in all of Western civilization and beyond. And if you wondered why, I think... Our passage today is exactly what you're looking for when it comes to answers, when it comes to understanding how a nation possibly gets to the point that we see our nation at today, where it's just a moral freefall. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17. We'll be looking at John chapter 17, verse 17 today. What our world has lost sight of, friends, and what has caused the moral freefall that we see around us is a loss of truth. A loss of truth. What is truth? I love that question, by the way. What is truth? I'm amazed by the fact that that's actually the same question that we'll see Pilate, Pontius Pilate asking Jesus in the next chapter, chapter 18 of John's Gospel, in response to Jesus saying this, he says, for this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Sounds very similar to what he says about his sheep hearing his voice in chapter 10. But Pilate in his response, asking what is truth, he demonstrates that he's not of the truth by asking that very question. It's almost like he missed everything else that Jesus said in that whole statement about who he is and about what he came to do. And the fascinating thing about Pontius Pilate's question there is that philosophers, until this very day, have continued to ask that very same question throughout the ages. What is truth? That's the question that people in our uh, time used to ask, used to commonly ask, but actually they've demonstrated their lack of understanding of truth as a whole by, by actually adding a word to it. Can you guess what that word is? Instead of asking what is truth, what would they ask? There you go. What is your truth? That is just the craziest thing in the world. What is truth is a deep enough question by itself, but people now asking what is your truth, the idea there is that truth 
for you can be different from truth for me. That truth is relative. That truth is subjective. That is that it varies from person to person depending on things like their personal biases, their personal preferences, their culture, their identity, their perspective, and so on and so forth. When I was in seminary, I worked part-time as a teller in a bank, and I remember when our manager called us in one morning for a meeting, and the point of that meeting was to improve our customer service. Uh, He wanted to make sure that we avoided using the word no with our customers. And he gives us the reason. I remember what he said verbatim. He said, because truth is all a matter of perspective. Have you ever heard somebody say that? You probably have, because everybody says that these days. Truth is just perspective. I hope that's not what you believe. Because if it is, I'm about to shatter your entire worldview, and it's way too early in the sermon for me to do that just yet. What I wanted to say to my boss, but I I bit my tongue, uh, was, is it just your perspective that everything is a matter of perspective? What if my perspective isn't that truth is all a matter of perspective? If truth is a matter of perspective, but it's my perspective that it's not a matter of perspective, what do we do with that? I mean, maybe I should have said that. I think I just would have confused him. But whatever the case, I hope you see the problem with the idea that truth is just a matter of perspective. It's actually self-defeating. and That is, when you take the statement and you apply the principles of the statement to the statement itself, it actually nullifies that statement. I was watching a video of things that are just mysterious and kind of unsolved mysteries type of stuff this week on YouTube, and I came across one video in which it, it appeared that these motorcycles were turning into uh, the wall of a bridge and simply disappearing But the host pauses the video for a second, and he points out that they actually weren't turning into the wall of a bridge at all. Rather, what looked like a bridge with water running underneath it actually just turned out to be the top of the building next door, and it was shot from a high perspective, you know, a taller building, and that the building next door was situated in such a way that you couldn't see the road onto which the motorcycles were turning. Uh, So were the motorcycles really turning into the wall on top of the bridge and disappearing? Is it true that these motorcycles were just disappearing into a wall? I mean, if truth was just a matter of perspective, the answer could be yes. But the answer is objectively no. There's an explanation for why it looked like that. Our world is just so confused about what truth is in our time, friends. I I wouldn't even argue with the assertion that the world has never been more confused than it is today. Postmodern philosophy has so thoroughly poisoned the minds of people that they've just lost sight of what truth even is. But if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, I want you to know from the outset here today that it is 100% unacceptable for us as Christians to not know how to answer Pontius Pilate's question. Why do I say that it's unacceptable? Well, we're in the section of Jesus' high priestly prayer in which he's praying for his disciples. And when Jesus is praying here, we understand that Jesus is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, but we also understand that the disciples were, in a very real sense, kind of like the foundation and the pillars upon whom Christ would build his church. After all, they would be the ones who would be the first to go out and evangelize. They're the ones who would write the New Testament letters and so on and so forth. The things that would characterize the disciples, therefore, would also be qualities that would characterize the church throughout the present age. And to that end, Jesus prayed, firstly we saw, He prayed that they would have His joy. Not worldly joy, but that they would have His joy. Secondly, we saw that He prayed for their sanctification. That is, He prayed that they would be holy. Holy in the sense, first of all, that they are set apart for God's purposes, but also holy, secondly, in the sense that they are not like the world around them. That they're not conformed to the world and the way the world thinks, acts, and, and so on and so forth, but that they would be 
different in how we speak and think and act. As Jesus prayed for the disciples to be sanctified or made holy, we, saw the, we also saw that Jesus prayed that they would be sanctified by a certain means. God not only ordains ends, but God ordains means to the ends. So how would His people be sanctified according to how He prayed? They would be sanctified in the truth. And Jesus followed that by saying, your word is truth. In other words, Scripture has a way of teaching us and causing us to grow in personal holiness and in uh, Christ's joy. And so Jesus prays here in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I want you to see that He did not say sanctify them in a truth. He said sanctify them in the truth. God's people, the church, should be a people who are characterized above almost anything else by a love for what is true. A love for the truth. But the world, as, as Pontius Pilate exemplifies, the world hates the truth. Right? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And do they love Jesus? No, the world does not love Jesus. They hate the truth. They don't want the truth. Paul tells us that the world does what with the truth about God? They suppress it in their unrighteousness. That's something that's characteristic of the whole world. Of everybody who's in Adam. Of anybody who's outside of Christ. But it's not something that should characterize those who are in Christ. It's not something that should characterize God's people. It's not something that should characterize the church. And I can't imagine that there's ever, ever been a time when people have openly and deliberately hated the truth more than they hate it today. What else do you think explains the idea that men can be women and women can be men? And you know, people can identify as you know, neither. Uh, they can be whatever they want to be. They don't even have to identify as human beings. They can identify as a pet or as an animal or as a thing. Uh, what, what explains this other than the fact that humanity hates and therefore rebels against what is true? Think about what Disney says. Disney says, you can be whatever you want. When you wish upon a star. And that type of thinking has crept in very subtly until... Everybody is really thinking that way. That you can really be anything that you want to be. I mean, you all know how prevalent this type of thinking is. It's rejecting what's true. But what is truth? We've got to get to that. What is truth? I mean, we've already seen that it can't be a matter of perspective because to claim that it's a matter of perspective requires that you have a perspective that says it's perspective, so it's self-defeating. The idea that truth is perspective collapses on itself when you apply the statement to itself, the, the idea to itself. So you can't have uh, a, a universal, absolute, objective definition like that because doing so can only flow from your perspective. Truth isn't defined by perspective, nor is it defined by preference. The fact that somebody doesn't like the truth doesn't change the fact that something is true. There are so many things that I don't like that are true. For example, I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. That, that is a true statement. Do I like that that's a true statement? Not even slightly. I don't like that I'm a sinner, but I am. I hate that I'm a sinner. I, I, I want to be done with sin. I long to be in a place where sin no longer resides in me. In a place where, where sin isn't even allowed in through the front door. I hate sin. But I especially hate my sin. I hate that I'm a sinner. But does that change the fact that I am a sinner? Nope. The fact that I dislike it is totally irrelevant. It's just a statement that I dislike that I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. He reigns. Amen? Amen? Is that statement true? Yes. 
I hope your answer is yes. But, but is, it, is it true only because that is your personal preference? No. Or is it true for all people in all times and all places? Yes. That statement is true for everyone, which is why Scripture very clearly tells us that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will bow and they will confess that He's Lord because it is true. It's true regardless of how somebody feels about it. Regardless of the preferences of those who will confess His Lordship against their own will. So truth isn't based on perspective. Truth clearly isn't based on preference. It's also not based on politics. Uh, Now you might think that this is only an issue for people who are on the left of the political spectrum, but that is simply not the case at all. Uh, It is true, I believe, that the political left wants to convince you that it's possible for men to be women and women to be men and whatever, but the political right is actually just as bad as the political left when it comes to this. That's why you have very well-known people on the right saying ridiculous things like, truth isn't truth, or using terms like alternative facts. There's no such thing as alternative facts. So truth isn't based on perspective. Truth isn't based on preferences. Truth isn't uh, based on politics. What is it? Many people would say that it's a matter of popular consensus. Popular consensus. That's how the majority of the the, uh, medical community has worked for the past two years, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, We have a consensus. The experts agree on such and such. Follow the science, right? Science doesn't fall in line with the consensus. That's not how science works. Science works by questioning the consensus, by challenging the consensus. What if the majority of people, uh, what if the popular consensus was that the moon is made of cheese? Would that make it true? No. Let's say they discover, okay, it's not really made of cheese. Well, it used to be made of cheese. Would that be true? No, it's never been true. The moon has never been made of cheese, regardless of what people have thought about it. So to show you how dangerous this kind of thinking is, let's remember that the vast majority of people, that is, the popular consensus, the vast majority of people believe that Jesus was maybe a good teacher, maybe a moral person if he really lived, but he's not Lord. That's what they would say. He wasn't God incarnate. Perish the thought that we would ever agree with the popular consensus simply for the sake of agreeing with the popular consensus. See, truth is none of these things. It's not based on perspective or preference or politics. It has nothing to do with popular consensus. So what is truth? How do we define it? It's so easy to define, it'll startle you. And I realize that sounds like a clickbait type of headline. But it's true. Oh, there I used that word. It's true. But what is truth? Truth is simply this. It's what's real. It's what's real. That's it. It's it's what corresponds to what really, what actually is. It's what aligns with reality. Think about it. Think about the implications of a phrase like fake news. We've all heard that phrase, that term, uh, the past few years. When we say that something is fake news, what are we saying? We're actually accepting this definition. We're saying that it's not a matter of perspective. It's not a matter of preference. That if, if you're giving us an idea that's based on those things, but it doesn't align with reality, it is false. So the very idea of fake news assumes this definition that truth is what corresponds, is what aligns with reality. It's not fake news because of any other reason. To say that something is fake news insinuates that it isn't presenting the facts in alignment with reality. That that some element or aspect of the story doesn't correspond to what really happened. Truth is what's real. Period. That's it. Truth is what is real. Now I want to give you something to think about. We'll give you a little test on this. 
I want you to learn how to put this type of thing into practice and to identify uh, false or wrong definitions of, of truth. Uh, theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once gave truth this definition. He said, truth always rests with the minority. Now what's wrong with that definition? Truth always rests with the minority. Well, when we apply that statement to itself, we have to wonder what would happen to the very concept of truth if most people, if the majority, believed that this is the definition, that truth always rests with the minority. So clearly, this is another definition that collapses on itself. Let me give you one more. As I was researching uh, this week, I came across an article in which someone was trying to debunk the idea that truth is, what, is, is what's real, is what corresponds with reality. And so the author of this article I came across wrote that the problem with, with this definition of truth that I've presented here is that, quote, the mind does not perceive reality as it is. The mind does not perceive reality as it is. How would you respond to that? Apply that statement to itself. Apply that statement to itself. The mind does not perceive reality as it is. Well, how can that be a true statement about reality then? And if it is, how did the person who's saying it perceive the reality that this is, that's so accurate that they could say this? They just proved that reality can be perceived as it really is. If the mind doesn't perceive reality as it is, and here's the reason people do this, if the mind doesn't perceive reality as it really is, then we can't be certain about anything. We can't know anything. But this statement is presented very dogmatically and with 100% certainty that the mind cannot perceive reality as it really is. So the only way to deny our definition of truth is to use our definition of truth. So what does Jesus mean when He prays that His church would be sanctified, that it would, that is, that it would be set apart and, and made holy? What, what does He mean when He prays that the church would be sanctified by God's Word, which is truth? He means that the Scriptures correspond exactly with reality. That what Scripture presents as being true is true objectively, regardless of perspective, regardless of personal preferences, regardless of politics, and regardless of popular consensus. The whole world can riot against God, and that doesn't make Him any less sovereign or any less true. God's Word aligns precisely with reality. There isn't one word in the canon of Scripture that has even a shadow of falsehood about it. It is all true. Now, when we say that something is true, this is important, when we say that something is true, we mean that it is true for everyone in every place at every time. Let's take this statement. Right now, it is 11.37 on Sunday morning, and you are in church. Is that statement true? Yes, it's true. It aligns with reality. It describes things as things really are. Will it be true in five years that you were in church at this time on this day? Yes, in five years it'll still be true. What about in 500 years? Yes. What about in 5,000 years? On Mars? Yes, it'll still be true. It's true for all people in all times, in all places. That's the nature of truth. That is how truth works. It's true for all people in all places at all times. I came across a story this past week, just an illustrative story, of a multinational corporation that was looking for a new marketing director. And after a, a few months of headhunting, they narrowed down their search to three leading candidates who were subsequently called in to do in-person interviews. The first candidate had his bachelor's degree in math, and the first question the interviewing committee gave him was, what is two plus two? And he sat there kind of stunned, thinking, what a stupid question. Am I, am I being tricked? Am I on camera? Uh, but he finally answered, four. So they thanked him for coming in. 
but he wasn't quite the fit that they were looking for. The second candidate was a statistician, and she was given the same question, what's two plus two? And she also started thinking, is this a a trick question? But she thought for a moment and cleverly responded that statistically, the most probable answer would be between three and five. Again, the candidate was thanked for coming in, but she wasn't quite what they were looking for. The third candidate was a salesman, and he was given the same question, what is two plus two? And without any hesitation, he answered, it's whatever you want it to be. Friends, that's where our world is right now. That's exactly where the world around us, our culture is Right now, there is a growing population of people who think that truth is just whatever you want it to be. And that if you want to argue that 2 plus 2 equals 4, you're a bigot or you're a racist or you know, any kind of pejorative. They think, they think this way, the, the, the truth is just whatever you want it to be, because that's what they've been taught. That's what they've been trained to think. And that is how a culture ends up believing that gender is fluid or that lives of human beings outside of the womb are more valuable than lives inside of the womb. It's how a culture gets to the point where up is down and down is up and good is evil and evil is good. That's how we got here. A recent study shows that 58% of American adults think that ethics and morality are completely subjective. That is, that there's no such thing as moral standard. There's no moral standard. There's no moral truth, objectively speaking. There's nothing that's always morally wrong. But that morality is just up to the individual to decide for themselves. And there is almost no difference between the beliefs of the church and the world when it comes to this issue. According to this study, self-professing Christians are almost just as likely to deny the existence of there being a moral standard, that's what 46% say, as they are to affirm that there is an absolute moral standard, 48%. No wonder the church is sleeping in the light in our day and age. What this reveals is that roughly half of every person who claims to be Christian in our country disagrees with Jesus when Jesus says, your word is truth. What this reveals is that roughly half of those who claim to be Christians in America reject the universal and absolute unassailable authority of Scripture over every person. Now, it's possible that if you were to, to really probe somebody who, den- uh, who claimed to be Christian and denied that there's such thing as a moral standard, it's possible that they'd say that they affirm the Bible for themselves as if it's their truth, but that the moral absolutes revealed in Scripture don't necessarily apply to everyone. They absolutely do, by the way. They absolutely do. Now, I know how the world responds to this type of thing. They'd say, well... The Bible is, is true for Christians, but the, the Quran, for example, is, is true for Muslims. As if neither book makes absolute truth claims, many of which come into conflict with each other. Let me give you an example. The Bible says that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. The Quran denies it. One must be true one must be false because those ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. Either Jesus rose from the grave or He did not. Which is it? It's whatever corresponds with reality. It's whatever is real. If Jesus is correct here, as He, as he says that, that God's Word, that the Bible is, is true, And if the Bible reports that Jesus rose from the dead, which it does, then the Quran is not in alignment with reality, and therefore it's false, at least on that issue. Which means that it's not true for anyone. It's not just untrue for us. It's not just untrue for people who are outside of Islam. It's untrue for anyone if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. Even if somebody believes it to be true, that doesn't make it true. See, people get this idea that truth is just a matter of what each individual, each person on an individual level feels 
or thinks or, or believes. That is, they have this idea that truth can be or, or is subjective. That it's possible for something to be true for one individual, but false for another. But here's the shocker for you. All truth, this is very important for you to understand, all truth is objective. There is no such thing as relative or subjective truth. That is a fantasy. It's, it's something that does not exist. All truth is true for all people at all times in all places. Let me give you an example. If you ask me, uh, Rocky Road ice cream from Baskin Robbins is the best ice cream in the world. Is it objectively true? Well, the answer is yes. In, in one sense, it, it is. It's true for all people at all times, at all places, that I think Rocky Road ice cream from Baskin Robbins is the best ice cream in the world. Just like if you say, no, mint chocolate chip ice cream from you know, wherever is clearly the best ice cream in the world, it would be true for all people and all places in all times that you think that mint chocolate chip ice cream is the best ice cream in the world. See how that works? It is objectively true that I believe that Rocky Road ice cream is the best ice cream in the world. That's not a subjective truth. It's objectively true that that's what I believe. There is no such thing as subjective truth. All truth is objective. There's no such thing as subjective truth. My old seminary professor, Norman Geisler, uh, was known for keeping a $10 bill in his front pocket of, of his shirt uh, that he kept there to give to the first person who could give him an example of subjective truth. And let me tell you, people tried. Every year at the beginning of the semester, people tried and tried, but nobody ever got that $10 bill from him because there is no such thing as subjective truth. Stephen Lawson notes that theologically speaking, quote, truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God, end quote. It's that which is consistent, that which, is, which aligns with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. That's exactly what Scripture is, isn't it? God is the God of truth. His Word is His Word. He's the one who has given it to us, and He is the God of truth. Isaiah 65.16 says, He who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Jesus said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to as the Spirit of truth. In fact, just a couple chapters back, that's how Jesus referred to Him. The Bible is true because it is the Word of God. The Word of God is true because everything God says is true. And everything about God is true. We are to be a people who love truth. We're to be a people who pursue truth. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I delight in your commandments which I love. That's from verse 47. Where do you find God's commandments? In His Word. You should be able to say the same, that you love His commandments. He says, I shall lift my hands up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 48. Where do you find those? In His Word. He goes on, and he just repeats this over and over and over again, that he loves God's Word. Uh, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 113. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. Verse 119. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. I mean, it's no wonder that we begin every single service uh, with a call to worship from Psalm 119. It's because God's Word is true, and we are a people who should love what is true and pursue what is true. God's Word isn't just true because we believe it. It's true for all people in all places at all times. That's why it is more precious than fine gold. If you love the truth then you know that it doesn't 
really matter how the truth makes you feel. And sometimes truth can make us very uncomfortable. Like, for example, sovereign predestination, election. But predestination is true regardless of how a person feels about it. Scripture clearly teaches predestination. So you have to do something with that word. It clearly teaches it. We read in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Everybody that God calls ends up at the end of that chain of promises. What that means, though, is that God does not call everyone. We're talking about the sovereign, effectual calling of God. There's an external calling that goes out uh, you know, goes out from the preacher, goes forth among men. When we preach the gospel, we call people to repent and to believe in Christ. But what this is saying is that all who are called are saved. And we know that that's not the way evangelism works, right? If it's just the external call. Because there's also then the sovereign, internal, effectual calling of God, which is from eternity past and stretches forth to eternity future. And the fact that God does not call everyone and thus does not save everyone tends to make a lot of Christians feel very uneasy. Uh, Have you ever heard Christians apologizing for what God's Word says, like that there's a hell and things like that? It's because it makes them uneasy. And, and so they're, they're recognizing and responding to, to that uneasiness that the doctrine of hell makes them feel. By the way, it should make you feel uneasy that hell is real. It should. But that doesn't make it untrue. So, so two questions. You, you, if, you, if you're arguing that you know, this or that seems so unfair, which is what the objection to, to predestination often is. Two questions. Is God ever unfair? That's the first question, and the answer is no. And secondly, does Scripture teach it? And the answer is absolutely. Yes, it does. So it's true regardless of how uneasy it might make us feel, regardless of how we feel about it. God's Word is true, all of it. And God's Word is the means that God has ordained for our sanctification. God is not just a God who ordains the ends. He also ordains the means to the ends. And He has ordained that His Word would sanctify us because it is true. It's also the means by which we can learn about and receive Christ's joy. So if you're wondering, how can I experience, how can I grow in, how can I feel Christ's joy in my life? Or if you're wondering, how can I grow in my sanctification? How can I grow in personal holiness? Man, you're asking the right questions. Those are good questions. And the answer is simply this. By reading and knowing the Scriptures and by applying the truths of Scripture to your life. Friends, that's the way it's supposed to work. God's Word is supposed to govern every single aspect of our lives. All of it. All of it. The Scriptures are true. And that is exactly why they are authoritative. That's why we yield our lives to whatever the Scriptures say. And when we're uncomfortable with something that it says, and and that does happen, that's okay, we have to remember that our feelings are the worst liars sometimes. That our feelings can be so incredibly misleading. As God's people, we must hold the line on this. That the Bible, and the Bible alone, is our authority. We cannot get this wrong. We cannot compromise on this doctrine. If God's Word is not objectively true, then what standard or by what authority do we live our lives if God's Word isn't true objectively? We're instructed to be a people who discern, right? John says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Well, how do we do that? How do we discern the, the 
true spirits from what's false. How do we test the spirits? By how a spirit makes us feel? No, because bad things can feel good. Do, Do we test something by how popular or unpopular it is? No, because there are plenty of unpopular things that are true. So by what standard do we test the spirits? By Scripture. By Scripture, because God's Word is truth. Let God be found true, though every man found a liar, as Paul said to the Romans. James Montgomery Boyce notes this in his commentary. He writes that, quote, In the Nazi period, the church went in one of two ways. Either it capitulated to the Nazi point of view, or it became increasingly a church of the book. Those who lived by the book eventually established a communion of their own. They signed documents identifying themselves as the confessing church. Why did they go this way? They did so because when the whole drift of society and the culture is contrary to biblical standards, it is impossible to appeal to any external norms. End quote. As I reflected on that quote, I thought to myself, man, we are dangerously close as a culture to being in the same position, the same situation that the church in Nazi Germany was. Our culture has so thoroughly turned its back on God. Our culture has so thoroughly rejected what's true. Our culture has so thoroughly abandoned biblical standards as the standards we we seek and that we live by. We can't appeal to anything else, anything lesser as being authoritative. That does mean, by the way, that the world will hate us. Jesus warned us of that. That does mean that we'll be more like Jesus freaks than DC Talk was back in the 90s when biblical values weren't so thoroughly rejected. But God didn't call us to an easy road. He didn't call us to the broad road that leads to destruction. He called us to follow Christ through a narrow gate on a narrow road. And what lights our path on this journey? We're back in Psalm 119 again, where we read, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What guides us through this journey? What is our authority through this journey on this side of glory? His word. Because His word is true. We must receive God's word as being entirely true. And when we do that, that's when we see God's word change people. That's when we see the Scriptures transform the minds of men and women as it renews their ways of thinking about things. The reason, if you think about it, the reason that there's such thing as heresy, the reason heresy exists is because there are people who don't believe that God's Word is true. They often believe enough of God's Word, enough of Scripture to sneak in through the front door, but they disbelieve enough of it that they end up distorting the truth and misleading who knows how many people. That's the way heresy works. The truth of God's Word directs us. All of it is true, and it all directs us. The truth of God's Word leads us. The truth of God's Word comforts us. The truth of God's Word might sometimes confront us. In fact, there's something wrong if His Word never does confront us. Scripture attests to all these things. But Jesus prayed here in the Garden of Gethsemane that the truth of God's Word would also sanctify us. That is, that the Scriptures would cause us and instruct us in being set apart for God's purposes, and they cause us to grow in the likeness of Christ. So let's be just very clear about this. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, no matter how long or how short you have believed, as long as we're here, We've got plenty of sanctifying to experience. Sanctification to be experiencing. The journey isn't over. And and we are a million miles away from being exactly like Christ. There's always, always more to learn. There's always room to grow. I could live to be 10,000 years old and there would still be room to grow. There's always a new way in which we have to yield ourselves to the truths of Scripture. 
None of us have reached the finish line of this race yet. Yes, the crown of glory awaits, but we're not at the finish line yet. And therefore, each of us must join Paul in saying, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's from Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Friends, the truth is, every single one of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, every single one of us needs to be sanctified further than we have been because there are still elements of the flesh which still need to be mortified dwelling within us. Do we still sin? Of course we do. Of course we do. John says in 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and what is not in us? The truth. And the truth is not in us. He says if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are still urges. There are still desires. There are still inclinations and temptations within each of us that rebel against the spirit of truth. We must continue to be sanctified by the truth of God's Word. And so with that in mind, friends, don't ever leave here thinking, oh, I learned a lot today. What an interesting lecture. What am I going to do with all this information? I think I'll go impress somebody with all this information I've picked up today. No. You leave here today and any other Sunday asking yourself, how does God's Word apply to my life? How does what Pastor Toby preached today apply specifically to my circumstances? What truth did I hear today that I needed to hear? What, what has God's Word said about my life? What has God's Word said about my attitude and my purpose? How then shall I live? How then shall I act in light of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, unassailable Word? The truth is, friends, we need to be sanctified further and further because the longer we live, the more we must see our need for God's grace. We don't necessarily stop sinning as much as we start realizing how pervasive sin is in our lives. That's, that's something that you can ask the most mature Christian about. It's not necessarily that sin is becoming more absent as they're just becoming aware of its presence. And so, there's always a need to be sanctified further. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that if Scripture is not your authority, then something else is, and it's not God. If Scripture is not your authority, then God is not your authority. And if God is not your authority, something far, far lesser is your authority. Because the fact is, we all have an authority. Everybody has an authority. For most people, it's simply the self. We naturally want to live our lives by our rules. We want to live our lives by, by our preferences and our desires. But Scripture makes it clear that the broad road on, in, on which such a person walks is one that will lead to your own destruction. Maybe you've relied on your own moral goodness for a right standing with God, thinking that you know God surely sees all the good things that you do and you're nothing like this guy over here or that girl over there that, that do this and that. But, but two questions for you, if, if that's you. If you, if you think that, that your moral uprightness is going to make your standing before God any more bearable, I have two questions for you. First of all, have you thanked God for your moral goodness? Because if you really have any moral goodness, it's only because God has restrained your sinful lusts and passions. The fact that you have not given thanks to Him and that you have not obeyed His Word in light of what He has given you, this restraint from other sins, that's a grievous sin against Him. The second question, and this is really the kicker, this is the most important question, is by what standard are you a good and moral person? Is it by society's standards? Because, you know, society used to think that, you know, slavery was okay. Society has, the popular consensus has has allowed for t 
terrible evils throughout history. So is that your standard? By what standard are you a good, moral, upstanding person? Let me tell you this, not by God's standard. According to God's standard, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. All but one. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, never once sinned. Only God can live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. And yet Jesus was crucified. And as He was, He took the sins of His people upon Himself and covered all who would believe in Him in exchange with His own perfect righteousness. Only Christ's perfect righteousness will suffice because it alone meets God's holy and righteous standard. This righteousness is received as a gift by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You must believe in Christ alone according to God's Word alone. His Word is true for all people in all places and at all times, including you here today. That means that it alone has the right to be your authority. The world, friends, the world rejects truth. The world hates truth. The world suppresses truth. There was a Gallup poll that came out this week that showed that it, the belief in the, in the Word of God, the trusting it to be true, is at an all-time low. An all-time low of 20% of all Americans. Whereas in 1984, uh, it was around 40% of Americans. Literally in the last 40 years, the percentage of Americans who believe that God's Word is true has fallen in half. And here we are. But friends, you and I, as God's people, we are different. We are set apart from the world. We are not to be like the world. And entirely contrary to the world, God's people are to be a people who know the truth, who love the truth, who pursue the truth, and who live by the truth. In light of that, may His grace sustain you and sanctify you as you joyfully yield your lives to the truth of His Holy Word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You again for Your Word. And we acknowledge the accuracy of what Jesus said, that Your Word is truth. It's so contrary to man's ways of thinking. It instructs us to live lives that are so contrary to man's ways of living. And yet, Your Word is truth. So we ask, O Lord, that You would teach us to abide in Christ by following Your Word by seeing Your Word as being authoritative and by taking the principles from Your Word and applying those truths to our lives in order that our lives may be conformed to the likeness of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King who reigns. We pray these things in His name. Amen.